Church, we have a God who invites us to come to him in prayer. So if you would uh, join me in prayer, and as I pray, allow your hearts to join in with what I'm voicing to God, and and let it be also the prayer of your heart to him as well. If it is, when I finish praying, you're welcome to vocalize that. You're welcome to say amen as an affirmation of what you hear me saying to God and join with me. So if you would, pray with me now. Almighty Father, we come to you thanking you that this is exactly where you desire us, coming to you. Father, we bring our requests to you, knowing that you love us, and that you are not simply one who loves, but one who is love. Merciful affections stream from your heart as rays come from the sun. And so we pray for our church even this morning. Father, we pray today for our brother, Caden Duford, as he last week joined us in membership. Lord, we thank you for Caden and his love for Jesus Christ. We thank you for a testimony of years of desiring to follow Christ. We thank you for the eagerness by which we see he now desires to serve the Lord with his life. We pray that you would preserve our brother, that he would walk in faithfulness before you. Father, as we think of our church, we are reminded that the Christmas holiday is coming, and many of us will be near family who may not be believing in Christ. Father, we pray for this next week, these next two weeks. We pray that as we go out from here, that you would give us a degree of winsomeness with our family members and our neighbors and those around us. Lord, would you give us a degree of boldness as well, that we would be happy to speak of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we could be those that live with a testimony of our faith in Christ, that we would know how to speak in every gathering we are in. Father, our hearts are heavy for those who have no family or less family this year. Father, we pray that we would grieve with those who are grieving uh, losses in our body. Father, we pray that we would Uh, care for those in our midst who are potentially more alone or have less, uh, uh, less family and those around them to celebrate with. Father, we pray that our church would be one that welcomes in uh, one another with the love of Jesus Christ. We, We pray this not only for our church, but for other churches. Lord, this morning we pray for Grace Church in Miami. We think of Pastor Eric Bancroft and the wonderful work that he has done over the last two years by your grace alone in in seeing this church planted. Father, thank you for uh, your kindness there. Thank you for the gospel that is clearly preached at Grace Church. Thank you that uh, your word is preached weekly and that that church desires to build themselves upon your word. We pray that they would grow. We pray that you would add to their number. We pray that they would grow not merely in number, but in a love for Christ, a depth of maturity, Father, an understanding of your word. 
May your grace be just powerfully abundant in that church, we pray. Lord, we ask for your help among us this morning. We open your word as those who are needy. We don't know all of the problems that we have. We don't know how good you are. Oh God, would you open our eyes this morning? Would you let us see into your word? Would you, would you speak through your Holy Spirit as he illumines your word to us? God, we long to hear from you. We long to be shaped according to your word. We long to be a changed church. And so we pray for you to work. And we pray all of this together in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Oh, come ye, oh, come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Dating back to the 1700s, this popular Christmas carol really serves as a call to worship, if you think about it. If you think about it, it's, it's emphasizing an invitation. Uh, Christmas, the arrival of Christ on the earth, means that we can come to God. We come to the one who is born, the, the king of angels, and yet, it doesn't take very many steps in his direction before we realize all the reasons why maybe we can't come. The sin and brokenness that we live in so often function for us as Christians as a type of voluntary slavery, of a self-selected shackles that we put on. As Christians, uh, we choose sin, or when we choose sin over coming to Christ, we're like uh, a little bit like that enslaved king that we read about in the story of uh, the Prince uh, Silver Chair, rather, in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. You'll remember that king. He lived in a foreign land, and he daily falls into enchantment, and he then ties his own ropes of bondage every night only to then come to his senses and realize that he can't free himself. An invitation for him to go anywhere may seem pointless. So if Christmas includes this invitation to come, then our sinful hearts naturally are left questioning, can we even come? What kind of invitation would we need to receive in order to come to this great God. Today's passage in Luke is a powerful juxtaposition of two invitations. Honestly, it's a bit of a comparative study, a comparison study between an, an empty invitation and a true invitation, a pointless invitation on one hand and an effectual one on the other, a, a freeing one on one hand and a binding one on the other. An invitation that is seething with frustration and an invitation that is brimming with compassion. 
If you haven't already, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. We'll be in verses 10 through 17 this morning. It'll help you to follow along in your own Bibles right in front of you so you can see that what I'm saying to you this morning is actually what the Bible is saying. So study along, read the verses as I read, look at what I'm saying, make sure it's actually there. As Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, we've just been studying over the last several chapters uh, an extended section of Jesus' teaching in the book of Luke. And in this uh, section of teaching, it will actually continue on for several more chapters. But here today, Luke takes a pause in recounting Jesus' teaching as he focuses his lens on the nature of the one who is teaching us. He reminds us of who it is that is offering these strong words of warning that we've been seeing. Luke wants us also to reflect on how Israel was receiving this teaching. So if you'll remember from last week, Jesus ended with a long set of warnings against the nation of Israel. He compared Israel to that fig tree that had not been bearing fruit, but would be given another chance. And it seems here that uh, some of Israel uh, was going to respond rightly to Jesus, but much of Israel was not. We're going to see some of how they responded. We're going to see some of this, an offer, again, of Christ. Today's uh, lesson is, quite honestly, a straightforward story. Uh, Luke doesn't draw it out. Jesus is returned to one of the synagogues, a place of worship and teaching for the Jews. You'll see that in verse 10. So on the Sabbath day, Jesus is teaching. Then down in verse 11, Jesus tells a woman with a deformity, uh, in the synagogue, he, he sees this woman, and he, she's hunched over and unable to stand upright. She's been sick for 18 years. Apparently, this sickness was caused by a disabling spirit. Just a side note, by the way, uh, Luke, the physician, doesn't often make this connection. But this time he does. He notes that her illness was related to some sort of spiritual oppression. Her bondage meant that she was tied down spiritually and quite honestly, physically too, bent over. So Jesus sees her, and he calls her, and he, he directly heals her. Look at verse 12. He, just, he says to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. Verse 13, and he, he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Now, did you catch that? So here is this miracle resulting in God being glorified. I mean, that's great news, right? God has worked. Jesus has brought healing. God is getting the glory. But no, this work of God is is not received. You see, the the surprise, the, the twist of the story comes as the freedom which Christ offers is rejected by someone who should have known better the religious leader of the synagogue. He objects to the work of Christ. Consider how we see this in my first point, point number one, the binding call of legalism. Now, I'm choosing those words carefully because this man, well, he makes an invitation. It's a, it's a call to come is what we're about to see. Uh, but it's binding, it's restricting. Ultimately, it's filled with legalism. Listen to how it unfolds. Follow along in verse 14. 
We read there. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Now, to understand really what's happening here, you have to understand the nature of the Sabbath day. God had given this day, the Sabbath, as a blessing to the people of Israel. It was a sign of their trust in him and of his provision for them. It was meant to be a day of rest. God's people were not to work on the Sabbath day, but rather look to him to provide. In fact, later in the book of Hebrews, you can read this this afternoon in chapter 3, we can read about how the Sabbath was actually a forward-facing rest. It was a, a rest that was looking ahead to actually an eternal rest that was to come. So notice the irony of this moment in light of what the Sabbath was. The day was given as a blessing to be a sign of God's trust and provision. The day was given to await a future coming rest. And here Jesus is doing just that. He was being a blessing. He was God incarnate, providing a provision to this woman of healing. He was giving her rest from her bondage. There was no better way to be spending the Sabbath than what Jesus the Messiah was doing here. And yet, how did this religious leader respond? Well, he became angry. He became indignant. In his eyes, Jesus was breaking his tradition. Now, just to be clear here, just so that we're all on the same page, Jesus did not break any Old Covenant laws. There are no laws in the Old Covenant There's not a single law against healing on the Sabbath day. No, the the Jewish rabbis had added many man-made laws, explaining their interpretations and their additions to God's law to not work. They'd given additional rules for what could and couldn't be done on the Sabbath day. But when Jesus here heals this man, he's not breaking a law. Uh, He's acting in compassion. He's healing this woman, and it's more than this leader can handle. Friends, this is the restricting nature of legalism. Look at how it binds and it blinds this man who should have known better. By adding to God's law, he's constructing a self-centered morality that's devoid of faith. He's making a man-made system. This man is blinded from celebrating the freedom that Jesus offered to this woman. He can't rejoice in her healing. This man has shackled himself. And Luke says he's full of indignation. To make it worse, did you notice the man can't even address Jesus directly in the text? Did you notice he, he doesn't talk to Jesus directly? Instead, he corrects the people in front of Jesus. Verse 14, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days 
and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. Now just imagine being one of the people in the synagogue that day, listening to this this half-hearted, kind of angry invitation. I mean, is this really a genuine offer here? As one preacher pointed out, at that point, the people there are all listening and thinking, sure, yeah, right, I'm sure if she would have come just on a different day, then you would have healed her. No. This man is angry about what Christ is doing. And Jesus doesn't fail to point that out. Look at verse 15. Jesus calls him a hypocrite. He uses the man's own system to show his foolishness. You see, in the rabbinic tradition, the Mishnah, it wasn't considered work to untie your donkey or ox if you needed to help it on the Sabbath. They made provisions for that. You could free your donkey to get him help on the Sabbath. And Jesus points out this inconsistency. He says, you fools, you can help your donkey and I can't help the daughter of Abraham, the the child of, of God's covenant people. Which is more important, caring for your ox or caring for one of God's chosen ones? By the way, there's this wordplay that's, that's happening here in the text between these words, binding and loosing. You might have noticed it. Jesus is saying when your, your ox is bound on the Sabbath, you can unbind it, you can loose it. But when Satan has bound this woman, I can't unbind her. In fact, those were the very words that Jesus used to do this miracle. He said, woman, you are unbound. You are freed from your disability. So in trying to keep the law, this religious man missed the point of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here, God was being glorified, and his neighbor was needing help. He wasn't doing either of these. He wasn't loving God or his neighbor. The man's concern with the law was twisted enough so that he missed the entire point of it. We're not surprised then how the man's story ends in verse 17. Just look down there in the text. We read, as he said these things, Jesus said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. There seems to be a reversal here going on. Surely this woman came into the synagogue and felt that she was the shameful one in a deformity. Like there, certainly there's had to be a sense of hiding there. Uh, but by the time Jesus left, it was his adversaries, these self-righteous ones who were indignant at his ministry. Those were the ones that left in shame. You know, this is the last time in the book of Luke that Jesus will teach in a synagogue. I think that's significant. Jesus had come to the fig tree, and he's found it fruitless, And despite attempts to dig around it and help it grow, the tree will now be cut down. Friends, this is the blinding and binding nature of legalism. It confuses. It adds to God's law. It produces self-centered anger. And it misses love. The danger of Empty morality is that it's a morality divorced from true faith in God. 
and it provides this empty invitation. You saw the word. He's, he's, he does say come, but there is no genuine offer here. What an empty, religious, legalistic offer it is. Let me just pause here, church, before going on. Let me just offer a couple of brief applications from even this first portrait that we see, considering the danger of legalism. First, as a church, let's guard against adding requirements beyond what God commands. Let's, let's just make this our habit as a church. Of course, all of us right now in the room are saying, well, of course, we all don't want to be the Pharisee. We don't want to be legalists. Oh, but friends, it is so easy, is it not, to add beyond what, what Scripture says we should do? We want to guard against the shackles of, of man-made religion. Where Scripture gives clear commands, it's healthy and good for us to obey. But where wisdom and prudence guide our actions, we should leave room for disagreement, even in our church. I wonder if it's ever occurred to you that one sign a church is healthy is that we have freedom here to disagree with one another, uh, disagree on areas of wisdom, and still be united together. Let me just give some examples of what I mean here. I, here, the man could have agreed that work on the Sabbath was prohibited, and yet still leave, leave space for Christ's pursuit of love in an action that clearly isn't work. And the same is true for us. We could all agree uh, that abortion is clearly a sin. Scripture is clear on that. But we might disagree with one another on different political courses of action to help address abortion in our culture. One person might say that we should deal with this sin one way and another another way. How it looks should, to obey that one command might look differently in our body. Or, I'll give you another example. We can all agree that we must raise our children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. We should train them up in the Lord. Scripture's clear about that. Oh my goodness, but there's so many areas of wisdom and prudence needed for all the many decisions for how we do that. We should be ready to have charitable disagreement among one another when we think about approaches to discipline or perhaps whether private school or public school or home school is best in order to accomplish this. Do you get what I'm saying? One sign of maturity in a church is that we are able to be firm where the Bible is firm without going farther than what the Bible teaches. Maybe this would be just a good lunch conversation for you this afternoon. Think about places where you might be tempted to be go farther than what the Bible says, where you might be tempted to not have charitable disagreement. I'm not talking about the places where the Bible is clear with its commands. I'm talking about the areas of prudence in your life. Let me give you a second uh, application regarding this portrait of legalism we see here. Let us guard against pursuing a version of holiness that is lacking love. This is the crux of Jesus' rebuke. He wasn't arguing that we should abandon holiness. He wasn't arguing that they should just ignore the Sabbath under the Old Covenant. Uh, in, the, in the Old Covenant, the Sabbath was to be kept. No, the, the hypocrisy that this man thought, that had was that he thought he could pursue holiness without love of neighbor. 
So even in the hardest of conversations, church, we should be motivated by love. Even in the hardest of rebukes, we are to be transformed by grace. Holiness always includes true love. So parents, when you correct your children, uh, do, you not, do they not only hear you describe how they've broken God's law or done what they shouldn't do, but do you also give time to explaining how much grace God offers to them? Or, or, or church members, as you talk with one another and you help one another walk in holiness, which is a group project, by the way, uh, do, are your conversations, even when prodding one another, are they typified by love? Husbands, fathers, as you lead your, your wives and your, as you leave your homes, do you walk in obedience to God's word, in holiness? Yes. And yet, is there a tincture of, of love and affection and grace? Friends, holiness always includes love. Our God is a holy God and a loving God. This religious ruler neglected to love his neighbor, and in doing so, his pursuit of the law of God became totally twisted. Well, let's move on. Uh, you see, this, this fake invitation, this empty invitation that we've seen, sets us so, up so well for our second and final point. Uh, on the one hand, we're meant to see this critique of legalism and lovelessness. It's meant to showcase the foolishness of man-made rules. Uh, but the glory of this story doesn't merely call us to see the binding call of legalism, but also to be shaped by the call of our Savior. Number two, we see the freeing call of Christ. You see, as I've said before, Christ's work throughout the book of Luke, uh, his miracles are not just random acts of kindness. It's not like he's just walking around like a wizard, just kind of waving his wand and just sprinkling goodness around to people that he meets. No, he's doing his miracles as living parables of sorts to teach us something about how he's going to work, about who he is, about, who's God, who, about the nature of the God that we serve. So if I could just right now in the, the second half of this sermon, if I could just pull you into worship with me as we just meditate on the glory of this miracle and what it teaches us about the, the nature of the God that we serve. Pray even now in your heart that your soul would be set afire in worship as you, as you look at Christ. You see, the theme of this passage is also of a Savior who says, come better than anyone else can. The miracle is meant to point in part uh, to to spotlight a man who is truly inviting. He's truly inviting the woman to come and be healed. I wonder if you saw in verse 12, Jesus began by calling her over. He invited her to come to him. So consider this invitation of this story, and let me invite you, come to Christ. Come to Christ for, first of all, he sees you. Did you see that in the text? In this potentially crowded synagogue, this woman was in this uh, unlikely place, first of all, to be in there at all, and then I wonder if 
with her diminished posture, if it would make it easier for her to even hide among the crowd. Oh, but did you notice, beloved, the first four words of verse 12? We read there, when Jesus saw her. She does not escape the gaze of our Savior. In a, in a culture where women were shunned publicly, where in a culture where she had a shameful disease, our Savior sees her. What a precious word this is, not just here, but throughout Scripture. We realize right now that we're watching the same God at work that had been working for centuries past. We think of the story of Abraham and Hagar, who looked and saw Hagar sitting afar and when Abraham sent her away, and Scripture tells us that he saw Hagar, leading her to say, Genesis 16, 13, you are the God of seeing. Or we realize we're watching the same God at work from the story of Jacob and Leah, the despised sister, when we read in Genesis 29, 31, that the Lord saw that Leah was despised, and he opened her womb. Or perhaps we're, watching, we're reminded that we're watching the same God who looked on other bonds like this woman's bond that need to be untied, like Israel in captivity. And when the people groaned because of their slavery in Egypt, we find in Exodus 2.25 that God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Oh, beloved, come to Christ today for he sees you. For those who are in Christ, our needs are not lost on him. They are not overlooked, they are not unobserved, they are not brushed off, they are not minimized. Esther Lou writes this so well, she says, in our shame-filled hearts, we hear the declaration, you do not matter from our sin. But God cares about people that we're not sure he would care about. He sees those who often go unseen. His gaze is filled with blessing, favor, and care. We find hope that maybe his watchful regard is for us, too. For those of us who can often feel small, insignificant, and unnoticed. Oh, beloved, come to Christ, for he already sees you. Come to Christ, for there is no sin which he cannot free you from. Please note that Luke made sure to mention the length of this situation, not once, but twice. Did you see it? How long was this woman in bondage? You can answer. 18 years. 18 years. 216 months. 6,570 days. That's a long time to be held under the brokenness of evil. How long did it take Jesus to heal her? Verse 17, and he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight. Oh friends, your brokenness, your besetting sin, the habit that you can't seem to break, the dark secret that you've held hid for so long, they are all powerless in light of the power of the Savior. 
18 years, disappears in just a moment with a word from his mouth. Some of you need to hear this today. Some of you may be tempted to believe the lie of the enemy, the accuser, that would say, oh no, it's been too long. Too much time has gone by. This, tra- this path is too well worn. You know your way too well to that sin. You're too far gone. Oh, beloved, bring your sin into the light today. Come to Jesus, for there is no sin which he cannot free you from. Come to Jesus, for his compassion is not like the compassion of others. His compassion is not like the compassion of this world. You see, that this world has the compassion of, the, of a legalist, of the religious leader. In, in our confusion, we somehow slip up, and we care for donkeys more than daughters. That's the irony here. And friends, you do this too, by the way. If you don't believe me, just do a little bit of self-analysis next time you get angry. And ask yourself what you're prioritizing more than the neighbor in front of you. We naturally have this icy, cold level of compassion that we see here in this man. But we can come to Jesus because his compassion is not like ours. He sees this woman and he says, daughter. He says, daughter of Abraham. Daughter of the covenant. The covenant that I have made with my people. Friends, his compassion is reframing how to see this woman in bondage. What earthly father would see a daughter tied up and not long to release her? Freeing her is no nuisance to him. Christ is saying, no, she's not a nuisance. She's an object of my covenant love. John Owen said it so clearly and rightfully when he said it this way. He said, Christ is inclined from his own heart and affections to give us help and relief. And he is inwardly moved during our sufferings and trials with a sense and fellow feeling of them. So fellow Christians, in your sin and in your need, do you know that this is the posture of your Savior? He desires to heal. If you are in Christ, then you too are a son or daughter of Abraham. This same compassion is now on you. So come to Jesus, for his compassion is not like any other compassion. Come to Jesus, for now is the right time. In his commentary, Daryl Bach captures this so well when he explains this parable. He says this, he says, the theme here is that Christ is ready to exercise his power on behalf of those in need. The miracle vividly shows that at any time it is appropriate to come to God for healing and restoration. Friends, we see this even in the the contrast being highlighted in the story here. The the religious leader says, come, just not now. And, And Jesus says, come, even now. The religious leader says, come, come, only at the right time. And Jesus says, come, now is the right time. Honestly, the the religious leader is essentially saying, don't come. 
We're not ready. It's the wrong day. And yet Jesus is standing there saying, come, I'm ready. So for Christians here today who have sin in your life, that the Holy Spirit has been convicting you of, don't wait longer to turn from it. Don't wait until you're cleaned up and ready. Don't wait until the right time. Come to Christ now. I mean, just very practically, maybe after the service, if the Lord's putting something on your heart, just find another member in this room and say, can you just pray with me? And just confess, bring your sin into the light. Or, or find a pastor here today who would be happy to help you think through what you're walking through. Or for those who are here who aren't yet following Christ, maybe you're here today and you're hearing what this passage is saying, you're thinking about Christ, and you're not sure what you think of him. You're still debating if you want to be committed to this man, this God-man. You're still debating if you really believe. Well, let me encourage you, the message of this story, and honestly, the message of the Bible, is to not wait to come to Christ. Don't wait and put this decision off for another day. As the old hymn says, if you linger till you're ready, you'll never come at all. You see, we have all offended God in our sin. Every one of us in this room has sinned against him. We deserve only wrath and punishment from him. That's what we deserve. Uh, but the good news of the gospel is that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live this perfect life for us. And he died in our place. He rose from the grave. He took the punishment our sin deserves. He broke the chains of our sin. He's set us free. The, the, the freedom that this world offers, it's a fake freedom. It's an apparent freedom that leads nowhere, but the freedom that Jesus Christ offers, oh my goodness, it's an eternal freedom. Friends, let me plead with you, if you aren't in Christ today, if you haven't looked to him in faith, come now. Come to Jesus, for now is the right time. Lastly, we'll end here. The invitation that we see here is to come to Christ for in him glorious joy awaits. Did you see that in the text? Look again at the end of the passage here. We saw last week that Jesus would have this dividing ministry, and here in verse 17, we see it's already started. Verse 17, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. There's no middle ground with Jesus. All his adversaries will, will be put to shame whether now or in the final day. There's, there's no neutrality. You might think there is. You might think you could just wait and just see. But no, there is no neutrality when it comes to this man. But there is another option. The end of the verse says, all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Oh, beloved, glory and joy come together in the person of Jesus Christ. He has designed that our joy would be made full by beholding his glory. That's what we're seeing here. When we see him in worship, 
when we see the splendor of what he does, when we see the glorious things that he has accomplished, our hearts are filled with joy. As many others have said before, before me, you don't have to decide between pursuing his glory and pursuing your joy. Those aren't at odds. The glory of how this text ends is that we see that his glory fills our joy. We see the glorious things that he has done and it allows us to rejoice. Oh, beloved, won't you rejoice in this Savior today? Come, come to Jesus. See the glory of this compassionate Savior. Behold what he is doing in the brokenness of our world. Witness his glory and find that joy awaits. Will you not come to him today? Will you pray with me? Oh God, we do thank you for the invitation of Jesus Christ to come and behold him. We thank you that he welcomes not those who are ready and cleaned up, not those that find some righteousness in themselves and some self-righteousness, but all of us who so desperately need a righteousness that is not from our own selves, an alien righteousness. Father, we look to Jesus Christ today. We worship him for his compassionate love for us. We pray that we would know this more today in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.